Now to our series on the plastics problem around the world. Disturbing images of plastic floating at the water's edge. Marine life can't dis discriminate often between plastic trash uh, and the food items that they want to eat. The downside to waste plastics is it lasts for so long. A bottle will last for maybe 500 years. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs. Plastic. It's a word that originally meant pliable and easily shaped. It's only recently become a name for a category of materials called polymers, which are used to make a variety of things like shopping bags, takeaway containers, and building material. Plastics have saturated our world and changed the way we live. For better in many ways, but more importantly, for worse. So where does it come from? It basically comes all out of the ground of petrol. That's Professor Martina Stenzel from the School of Chemistry at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. I found it really amazing to think that it is so cheap because you have to get the resources out of the ground, you have to transport them, then there's huge cracking process involved with high temperatures, high pressures, and then finally you have um, your building block and then you make a polymer. Martina is a polymer chemist and the word polymer means of many parts because they're made of these long chains of molecules. And it's the length of these chains and the patterns in which they're arranged that makes polymers so strong, lightweight and flexible. In other words, it's what makes them so plastic. So when you actually think about that, there are many steps and every step I would have thought is very, very expensive. So we transport oil all over the world um, to be processed into some um, plastics. It always puzzles me that plastic is so cheap. It shouldn't really be so cheap. And I think it's very often just a scale of things. The world produces 300 million tonnes of plastic every year for a variety of uses. For example, 16,000 plastic bottles are made every second. 16,000, 32,000, 48,000, 64,000, 80,000. You get the idea. And it just takes a trip to the supermarket to see how much plastic is used for fresh food packaging alone. If you look at statistics, we still uh, know that about 65% of the bioplastics actually go into food packaging. That's Associate Professor Jayashree Arcot from the School of Chemical Engineering at the University of New South Wales. Can we do something about bioplastics and, you know, have a better packaging material that would also give it a, a longer shelf life? To invent more environmentally friendly packaging, Martina and Jayashree turn to nature for the solution. Because as it turns out, cellulose, which is found in plant cell walls, is a very common natural polymer. There are so many compounds in this plant cell wall, and one of them is cellulose. I probably would say cellulose is nature's plastic, because um, plastic is basically long molecules, um, like a string, and cellulose is a long uh, molecule made out of many, many sugars bound together. And because they have these long strings, they can really um, provide the stability uh, for plants, for trees, and so on. Cellulose is, in fact, one of the most abundant organic compounds on Earth. But Martina and Jayashree are interested in something even smaller. 
nanocellulose. The reality is you can actually isolate nanocellulose from pretty much all plants. That's actually a quite established field in areas where they have a lot of plants, like in Canada, Scandinavia. There are huge research centers just around isolating nanocellulose and make new products from it. And Martina and Jayashri are getting their nanocellulose from bananas. Australians love bananas and we grow a lot of bananas. Around 400,000 tons were produced in 2016-17. Value addition was close to about 600 million dollars and contributing about 1.2 million to the Australian economy per year. We all know that the most edible part of the plant is the fruit and that's only 12% of the total weight of the plant. So if you're looking at tons and tons of banana plants, what happens to the stems after the fruits are harvested? In Australia, it's still, the industry still does not utilize it to the, to the maximum. So, I mean, if 12% is for fruits, then 88% is wasted. So there's a huge opportunity. But they've struggled to get their hands on these banana stems for their research. So they turned to the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. We knew that there were banana plants in the botanical gardens. And if somebody could actually tell us what the variety was, and it would be easy for us to source it. We had a constant supply, almost guaranteed from the botanical gardens. Whenever we asked, we got it. So with a banana stem supply sorted, how exactly do Martina and Jayashree extract nanocellulose from them? And the first thing is you really cut it down into small pieces and, um, and you grind it and you have almost get some flour-like uh, material and it's brown. You treat it with some acid or base and uh, in our case we oxidize the product as well, almost like you would oxidize your washing. Uh, you bleach your was- washing, it's, it's almost quite similar in some ways. So actually from the outside you wouldn't even know that um, you change the properties. But when you then go and look with the microscope underneath, then you can actually see huge differences because you start off with something that has very long fibers and uh, very regular fibers. And now you end up with something uh, where you actually need a high-end microscope uh, called a transition electron microscope. And now you can see the fibers under that microscope and you see actually they have nano size. So they're very, very tiny. But because they're so tiny, they have a lot of surface area. And this is really the difference between nanocellulose and just a normal cellulose material. And that's why nanocellulose is so attractive for so many applications. I mean, we looked into food packaging, but um, other people look at uh, nanocellulose for biomedical application like wound healing to deliver drugs or to make other composite materials uh, that can potentially replace uh, uh, packaging. I got to go into one of the labs and check out what this nanocellulose looks like and it's sort of like this crystallized gel that's suspended in water and once it's been isolated like this it's ready to be turned into food packaging film. Very often this is where the work starts because then you have a nice nanocellulose film and it looks beautiful but sometimes it just doesn't have the right properties and you want to tweak the properties and you add something else where we know this is non-toxic. It has been used before and it's maybe something we get from nature, some clay or whatever we can find to make the properties better, to make it stronger. Uh, there's a lot really you can do there. It's just really looking at chemistry like a 
little Lego uh, box and you just put the things together. So um, if you want to have new food packaging, you put this together. If you want to have a new system for to enhance cancer treatment, you put this together. And I think this is really fascinating. When it comes to tweaking the nanocellulose packaging material and playing with those chemistry Lego blocks, what are some of the properties food packaging needs? A few properties we were looking for. One was they should be strong enough to hold enough weight. The second important property for us was how flexible is it. Cling wrap is popular because of its ability to be flexible, to be able to be stretchable, to wrap things around. The third one, of course, was uh, the obvious one, that it has to be hydrophobic. Uh, You don't want a packaging material where you put something wet into it and then all the water is absorbed by the packaging material and there it tears immediately and it's of no use. And of course, behind all all of that is, is it biodegradable? That's a lot of criteria. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we are working through every property one at a time. Um, so we are trying now to focus our attention towards hydrophobicity. When I contacted Jayashree for an interview, she promised she'd show me some prototypes. Um, this is about four years work here. It's like a little photo album. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, this was actually uh, done by my, uh, by our PhD student before she left. She said, I'm going to put everything that I did in an album and put samples in there for you to show to people. So I can't get over so. This honestly feels like you're sitting down showing me the family album of your research. <laughs> yes. As we flick through this sort of family research album, I can see all sorts of little packaging prototypes with all sorts of textures and colours, including some that are completely broken down and brown. These films were actually put inside the soil and we waited for six months to see what happened to it. So this is what we ended up with. They're tiny pieces that almost look like dirt and leaf litter. They will never disappear 100%, but they would be really chewed up into smaller uh, particle size in the soil and wouldn't be too much of an issue uh, because they are biodegradable anyway. So it definitely passes the biodegradable test, but what about all the other criteria, like durability and keeping the food fresh? Like, how do you test it then? You've got your small lab scale, like, prototype. Yeah. What do you do? Do you get, like, a little tomato and wrap it up and see if it works? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we should. uh, That's, of course, one way of doing that. And usually once you have your paper you try to put it in your hand and you try to um, feel it. Can you rip it? Can you bend it? Can you roll it? Uh, but uh, we have other ways to quantify it a little bit less, uh, <laughs> less subjectively. So you would, for example, do mechanical testing where you put the paper in a machine and you rip on it and the machine tests exactly how much energy it needs, how much force it needs to rip the paper or you put some water on top and you can measure um, how much water gets absorbed into the, uh, into the paper. So it gives you some uh, very uh, quantitative measurements and you can really work with that and you can then compare your materials across and then, uh, identify which one works better. When do you imagine that you'll walk through a supermarket and you'll see your packaging around this fruit and veg? So at the moment it's all lab scale for us. We are working with really, really small amounts of nanocellulose in the lab. And um, taking it to the market means we also need to see 
how to scale up. Once we scale up and, you know, we also need industry to be on our side to be able to assist us because universities can only take it that far. And the other thing is often people ask us, well, how does it compare with the existing plastics in the market? Mm -hmm. And it's always with the price and would people really go for it? But I think as uh, Martina would agree as well, I mean, this is this we're not proposing this to tell people that it's going to be cheap because we can't beat the petroleum-based products anyway in terms of price. But at least there could be a niche market. Personally, this is my view, and I'm sure Martina will have her view about this, but I think making it hydrophobic would probably be the jackpot for us. All around the world, there are so many amazing inventions taking place to create more sustainable products. And some researchers are focusing on sunscreen. Now, since about the 80s in Australia, there was a seagull called Sid who had a lisp and he told us to slip, slop, slap. But a common chemical in many sunscreen lotions is actually toxic to juvenile corals and other marine life. We know lots of the current sunscreens are um, not biodegradable and they are accumulating in the environment. That's Professor Charles de Koning, a synthetic organic chemist from the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Now, he isn't a sunscreen expert, but in order to create one of the most recent inventions he's been involved with, he had to understand how the properties in sunscreen work. So ingredients in sunscreen, well, they're supposed to protect you from UVA and UVB, obviously. So um, there are inorganic compounds. So these are like titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. And these are basically, they form a physical barrier. The molecules behave as small mirrors and they reflect the UV radiation. Organic filters, they absorb the radiation. And then basically what they do is they dissipate it as less harmful heat. So it's not as though you're going to catch on fire or anything like that. It'll be very, very small amounts of heat which you you won't notice. Charles and a team of researchers around the world have invented a new synthetic organic compound from natural material that has UVA and UVB blocking properties, just like sunscreen. Now, to understand how they did this, we first have to look at what organic chemistry is is a study of compounds that contain carbon, amino acids, which make up proteins, carbohydrates, DNA. So, okay, I'm a little bit biased, but I think organic chemistry is uh, very important in life. It's, it's the, the chemistry of life, essentially. I'm actually what's called a synthetic organic chemist. So we take things from nature and we try and build them into other things. So, but there's always the element carbon in our molecules that we, we try and make. For example, uh, salicylic acid, which you might have got from a willow tree, um, and you are trying to make that into something else. So you're doing chemical reactions on that to make, for example, aspirin. Another amazing example is the contraceptive pill. Russell Marker, a professor of organic chemistry at Pennsylvania State University, used the Mexican yam to isolate a compound that he converted into progesterone. Not everything is based on sustainable or natural sources. 
many of our basic starting materials that we used are derived from the petrochemical industry. Our petrochemical resources are dwindling and it's a finite resource. As a synthetic organic chemist, you would like to practice the principles of green chemistry. So one of the principles of green chemistry is to use basic building blocks, which obviously contain the element carbon, because I'm an organic chemist. Also, when you're a synthetic organic chemist, you do chemical reactions. And when you're doing those chemical reactions, you might produce waste in those chemical reactions. So what you try and do as a synthetic organic chemist is you try and do reactions where you don't produce waste. Because if you're going to produce waste in the reaction, well, it could be toxic, for example. Even if it isn't toxic, it's still waste. And then it has to be disposed of somewhere. It's a lot of criteria. And just like Jayashree and Martina, Charles not only looked to nature for the answer, but he looks at where enormous amounts of organic waste are being produced. Now, this might surprise you. Cashew nutshells. What happened first is um, I met someone from Tanzania who was already working on cashew nut shells. The cashew nut shell waste generated in small-scale cashew processing industries is about 67% of the total weight of the cashew seeds. And what I saw they were doing is from the cashew nut shell, which, as we've said, is waste already, um, they were extracting compounds. And these kinds of compounds are called aromatic compounds. So aromatic compounds are compounds which uh, contain a benzene ring, so it's a, it's a class of compounds. And it's not so difficult to extract these aromatic compounds from the cashew nut shell. Just like the banana stems, there's a process of chemically manipulating the cashew nut shells so you end up with the smallest building blocks that you're after. And Charles says that when you do this with cashew nut shells, you end up with this sort of black tar-like liquid that contains the aromatic compounds. We did chemical reactions to transform those building blocks into different types of compounds that we thought could potentially be um, UV absorbers. So we made compounds such as, and I'm mentioning a chemical name here, triazines, which we thought could be UVA and potentially UVB absorbers. Charles kind of describes this process of creating new synthetic organic compounds as really, really precise cooking. And since the research was published in August 2019, it has received widespread media coverage. But how long until we're using cashew nutshell sunscreen? Well, Charles says there's still a few questions to answer. How biodegradable are, are the what things that we are making? We, we don't know that yet because we've just made them. And then probably very, very importantly is what is the effect of our compounds on the human skin? How toxic is the product that, that we're making? Also, can we scale up the process so we need to involve engineers? The techno-economics, is it commercially viable? Are we going to be competitive with uh, commercial sunscreens? But the most interest we have is from commercial companies that are involved in making materials. So that material might be uh, at, at home, we've got a pool and we haven't had much rain recently. So I have a plastic pool cover to stop evaporation and the pool cover is really perishing. So it could be very useful in materials that are exposed to the sun. The 
the possibilities for plant-based inventions are endless. And scientists have even converted acids found in tea leaves and buckwheat into fire-resistant chemicals, which may offer a less toxic way to fight fires. I think what nature creates is absolutely amazing and there's so much complexity and we really overlook that very often. I mean, think about a tree apart from being absolutely beautiful, compare for example the stability of a tree or, um, I mean, bamboo is uh, very well known for being really stable. I mean, so we had to invent concrete to actually achieve the same outcomes. We need to look more into nature because we almost try to reinvent things and Nature has already invented that. We just need to look at it and get inspired and use that and maybe maybe even improve it. Thanks for listening to Branch Out. If you liked today's episode, make sure you leave a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. It helps more people find us. That was episode 25 and the end of season five. I can't believe it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening along if you've been there from episode one thank you so much for your support and tuning in i hope you've enjoyed it so far and if you're new don't worry you can go back and listen to 24 other episodes because we will actually be taking a short break over the christmas and new year period but we will be back so in the meantime you can always check out the story section on the royal botanic garden Sydney's website or the science page so you can keep discovering the surprising world of plants And if you're in the spirit of giving and you want to support vital scientific research at Australia's oldest scientific institution, head to the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney's website and look for that donate button. I'm Vanessa Fuchs and I produce this episode of Branch Out.